Hey everybody, my name is Alex and you're listening to Lunchbox Radio. So before we get started, a couple of things. First off, thanks everybody who listened to my episode about Mirai. I had a lot of fun seeing that movie. It actually surprised me a lot how much fun I had seeing that movie. Um, but I also had a lot of fun talking about it into a microphone for you guys. So thanks for listening. The other thing, um, actually the other two things are... First, I'm going on vacation, but that doesn't mean that episodes are stopping, don't worry. I kind of intend to stop for no one, or no and no thing. But what that does mean is that I won't be doing, I won't be talking about like an anime proper per, for probably about two episodes. Um, what I will be doing, maybe three, we'll see how the dates work out, but I will be doing a show on kind of bigger topics and concepts like um maybe maybe like a John I'll maybe talk about a whole genre of anime like um if you want an example of this you can go listen to the Echi episode which is actually one of the more popular episodes I've ever done uh wonder why wink wink nudge nudge but um that's a good example of the kind of episodes you'll see Starting actually the 27th, because that's the day I leave and I'll be on a plane to a place I'm not going to tell you guys about because I'm not going to tell you. You can't make me. I'm I'm wherever I am in the world at the time you're hearing this and you're wherever you are and we'll just have to live with that. The next thing I want to talk about actually is uh, Netflix. And full disclosure, I'm talking about a Netflix show this week, but I I want to talk a little bit about all the, like, announcements that they have made, mainly the Avum announcement, the Cowboy Bebop live-action series announcement, and the Evangelion announcement, and I just want to say that I think that it's good that they're picking up Ava because everybody's had a lot of issues afford being able to afford actually licensing full-on unleaded Ava that isn't the movies because apparently Funimation has its claim on those movies for whatever that's worth. But um, they are also announced that they are doing a live-action Cowboy Bebop series. It's supposed to be about 10 episodes, and... My, it's gonna sound odd, but I've been, I've been watching anime for, at this point, decades. <laughs> if if we're being completely honest, decades. And it, it, I always have one very strong feeling when I hear about a live action thing. I say I believe it when I'm sitting in front of it and watching it. Now. Things like, um, I've talked about Battle Angel Alita, the, um, Alita Battle Angel, which is, um, James Cameron's kind of pet project that he's had for, for, for decades, actually, um, and been trying to get made, and he's finally making it, and it's gonna come out in theaters. I forget when, but it's coming out, and that's a different thing that has a release date on it, and it's like, hey, we're doing this, and I'm not sure if the Cowboy Bebop show has a release date on it, 
But like I keep saying, that's one of those things that I have a very believe it when I believe it when I'll see it stance. Just like I believe, I'll believe that the Akira movie is real when I have tickets for it in my hand and I'm standing at the theater waiting to get into the show. That's how that's gonna go, and that's also how I feel about the Cowboy Bebop production because while Netflix wouldn't announce it if they weren't going to actually make sure it gets made. Uh, you know, anything could happen. Now, the last Netflix announcement I want to talk about is the Ghost in the Shell announcement. Now, by all accounting, this new the new Ghost in the Shell is supposed to be almost a continuation of Standalone Complex, which... I don't think I've, I'm pretty sure I haven't talked about standalone complex proper on this podcast. I've talked about the original movie, the original 1989 Ghost in the Shell movie, but I haven't talked about standalone complex. Standalone complex is just a really great piece of cyberpunk entertainment and a really great piece of Ghost in the Shell entertainment all at once. Um, which you think would be wouldn't be mutual would be mutual wouldn't be mutually exclusive, but they can be. They totally can be. Trust me. Um, but uh, it concerns me a bit that it's in CG because I, Netflix is doing a lot of CG animation, and it, uh, when I after the mirror after the after I watched. Mirai, um, they had Momoro hosted on, and he lamented the fact that there aren't any, that there were only two hand-animated features in the theaters in Japan, and one was his, the other was Miyazaki's, and even Miyazaki is making a CG anime movie, and I think it's called, like, the hung, like, the Red Caterpillar or something. Um, but it's just, it makes me, as someone who originally trained to be an animator, it makes me kind of, like, disappointed that it takes so much for people to see the value in hand animation because it costs so much, and it does cost a lot. If you haven't seen Shirobako, eventually I will talk about it on, talk about that show on this show, but that will probably be a weird episode, because I'll have to, like, dive into industry stuff, which, if you noticed, I don't do much on this particular podcast, because while I think there's value to it, I, I like to present the shows I'm talking about in less of a dissecty way, if that makes any sense. I like to talk about the feels of the show and the intent of the show, not necessarily the, like, like, here's who the head animator was, here's who did all the keyframes, all that stuff. I, now that I have two screens on my fa- in my fancy production setup, I can look all that stuff up for the show I'm talking about this this week. I have pulled up the my anime list page, so I have stuff at the ready, like the release date and all that junk. But, 
I would be a bit remiss if I didn't say, you know, yes, that stuff mattered, but there's, there's something... Th Art is about... Present about creating art is the act of presenting something and then giving it to an audience be a dance be it that dance be it that film be it that photography be it that music and animation is part of that and to like jump into all that mess and deal with it when specifically that when and let that raise or lower the profile of a show on its own i i just i don't want to be about that which is why i generally don't talk about that stuff now that's going to be a little different for the next two or three episodes because like i said i'm going to be doing something very different with those episodes than i have done before um actually not entirely different than once again the etchy episode you can listen to somewhere in the feed of this show um but it, i just want to present things as flatly as possible and like talk about talk about my genuine like feelings on a show regardless of necessarily the the creative team that made it because i think that i think that lots of people once they start to get into a thing and they start to feel this need to get technical and know like the names of the head animators, the directors, or or like the know the names of all the creators and know the names of their intentions and start to let that inform the way they feel about things. And while that there's nothing wrong with that, I'm not dissing that. I, there is kind of a loss of spontaneity and a loss of, like, just loving a thing sometimes that can happen. Um, I heard Evan Mento over on Anagamer talk, talk about um, Studio Trigger, which has a really ardent fa fan base. I've talked about some of their shows on this podcast. Namely, I talked about Kid Niver and one other show. But, um... He talked about the the fans of that studio relentlessly reading reading into things and being like, "Oh, what what is this? So much to what does this mean? So much to the extent that the people at that studio have to now like not even like kind of clue the audience in when they're just like making a funny joke, but like sit down and be like, no." And be like, no, no, the, like, we just said that, but that was a joke, that's not what actually happened, and the fans still don't get that, because they're in this, like, permanent, some of them are in this permanent mold of, like, analyz analyzing and critiquing and all of that stuff, and that has a value and a real place and should be done. But you also gotta let yourself have fun with it, and that's why I kind of, like, ramble on, and I don't obsess over, like, nitty-gritty details all the time on this show. I probably get a lot of stuff wrong. But, um, to that end, at, 
hand animation has this has this real artistic feel. It 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 has this feel of here is someone who it whose artistic talent is taking them as far as they're capable of going. And if they don't if they don't know how to draw something, they sit down for hours and figure it the fuck out. And now, while believe me, there's lots of talent in using 3D modeling and CGI. I actually do a lot of that for my day job, but there is a certain amount of you punch something in the computer and the computer makes it go, and you can let the computer do what it does best and give you a result, and it's just. It's disheartening to know that, like, the br- the brilliance that brought us scenes in things like Akira and Ghost in the Shell and Spirited Away and Princess Monoki, that's two Ghibli films. I've hit the recommended limit of Ghibli films in example movies, but it's dispiriting to know that, that stuff has just... It just looked at as too much work and too expensive to produce. And yes, that is a reality that we all have to live with. And it that helps a lot more people get paid for a lot less work, which is always a good thing, believe me. Um, but there's this, like... Okay, so to explain this, I'm going to talk about The Princess and the Frog. The Princess and the Frog is, if you've never seen it, is Disney's, like, first hand-animated movie in, like, decades. And it came out a while ago. I forget exactly when it came out. But it was a huge deal because it was hand-animated. And people loved living daylights out of this thing. It also had a African-American Disney princess who they can't turn into a white lady no matter how they how hard they try. It also had a super racist, like, businessman and tried to paper over all that stuff, and that was pretty disgusting. But <laughs> the fact remains that Disney returned to its roots to do hardcore hand anim- a hardcore hand-animated feature film, and people went bananas for it. Why? Because there's some real value to it. There's some real value that sweat and blood weight brings. And with... And there, it's not that that sweat and blood weight probably doesn't go into um, the CGI shows that, we're, that are popping up all over the place now. But it just doesn't... Uh, there... It's gonna take time for that stuff to be more to be as expressive as hand animation because hand animation is a pro is now a product of it, uh, centuries of perfection and practice. They say they say in like the business world that it takes ten thousand hours to be a master at something. There are, there are 
the animation industry has put tens of thousands of hours in hand animation. And they're still kind of at the five at the five thousand hour mark in computer animation comparatively. If you if you so for example, if you watch a show like Zombieland Saga, um, that's happening this season, they have CG dance scenes in there that are like they seem bad from what I've seen. I haven't seen I haven't seen them in context, but what of what I've seen, they seem bad. But I have seen the rest of the show in context, and it's got the like hand the like rest of the show feels fun and fluid and interesting. And then you cut to like this was the way we could do this and we could create moves that like a person could do because we want we want a we want a hara a hara yukai of our own. If people listening don't know what a hara hara yukai is, go look it up. It's a, it's a thing. Go look it up. Um, or the lucky star dance of of our own. So, um, and the new Ghost in the Shell is gonna be a. CGI anime, and I, just because of the way that Standalone Complex originally felt, it had this, it, the, the, like, hand animation gave it this humanistic qual gave this stuff this humanistic quality, and the CGI that was used in that show was used specifically to give robotic characters, not non-human characters, because there are lots of non-human characters, there are lots of non-organic human characters, um, in that show, but we made to give, was used to give the robotic parts of that show a real robotic feel, and it was cost-saving combined with a strategy of how to make it, of how to make that an effective use of an artistic tool, and I just wonder how that's going to shake out if the whole show is CGI. So, um, that's my thought on that stuff. And now, for the actual show we'll be talking about, a different Netflix show, a hand-animated Netflix show called Be the Beginning.
show be the beginning is an odd show it, it it came out um in march of this year actually believe it or not yes i know that for various reasons especially if you live in america it's felt like this year has been 10 years long and march was all the way at the beginning of that but be the beginning came out in march of this year and it had been kind of hyped up with the trailer that Netflix released because it was this, like, stunning-looking trailer. But then it kind of came out and just kind of, like, was a meh show in most people's opinion. I actually skipped over it, not because I wanted to, but because I just kind of fell off around episode three, um, which happens to me weirdly. Like, I make it all the way to episode three, I'm like, yeah, and then I don't go back to things because... I am a terrible person comprised of 70% trash. Um, but the reason why it was mad was because it's was why it was met with mad was because it's it's a really gorgeous gorgeous show. It's real it's production values are through the roof. It is production IGs on their like on their shit and like getting that Netflix money kind of look. It is stunning. And it every, everything about the show is stunning. There's, I don't... I didn't spot a real dip in, like, quality or animation kind of ever, in my knowledge. It also has really music... really interesting musical choices, and it has a really solid dub, I think. Um, but it is the story of this, of this kind of mystery, you're following a mystery, basically, and that mystery is kind of started off with, you meet this rookie detective named Lily, and Lily is, she's, she is started out immediately as being this, like, cute, adorable, but also kind of sexy, bumbling weirdo, which, you know, the anime industry, the, the anime industry loves to produce that kind of character. I, Otaku loves to gravitate towards that character. And she has those traits in, in spades. Um, you come to find out some other stuff about her later, though, which we'll get to. And the opening, the opening episode, you meet... Her, her, as she interacts with her brother, as she interacts with, a, not her younger brother, but uh, like a young, like a younger brother, um, what's the best word for it? A younger brother figure of sort named Koku, and Koku worked with her, worked with the rest of her family at a violin shop repairing violins but she's late for work she grabs some food from koku and she rushes off to work you get three things you get a lot of personality out of out of lily at this point you also get the fact that she is like a bad driver isn't the word because she drives with a kind of skill that is She's like, it's like if you put a Fast and Furious character just, like, in a suburb 
if that makes any sense. That Like, that's the way she drives. She's like, oh, fuck this guy's lawn. I need to get to that side of the, to that side of his house. Time to drive on his lawn, around his house, through his backyard, through this other person's backyard, through this other person's front lawn, and onto that side of the road, but going in the opposite direction. It's like a move she would, like an S-curve move she would make in her life without a second thought, and does something similar in the show. But she gets to the investigation site, and you find out that they are investigating pretty intently this serial, somebody who's come to be known as a serial killer in this town. And I should note that this, that Lily is Japanese. It's of Japanese descent. But she's not, but she's not in Japan. They're in some, like, amalgamation of a European country that has a king and then, like, an aristocratic bureaucratic ruling class just under the king that, like, runs the country. And she's part of, like, a elite investigation force for the police there. And then you meet Keith. And Keith is this kind of, like, schlub of a, like, weird, weird, grumpy schlub of a guy who apparently is supposed to be one of the greatest investigators who ever lived. And he's supposed to be, he's supposed to be a world-class genius, and, like, think of, like, Sherlock, a Sherlock Holmes type without the drug addiction, uh, but with strangely less interpersonal skills. Um, he's, he's that kind of character. And Willie's like, who the fuck is this guy? Who let him on the scene? And his, and his old, his old cop buddy is like, oh, I called him. He's like rejoining the force today. And she's like, oh, thanks for letting me know. But, um, she... So, Keith is helping them investigate, like, this ke- this serial killer who they're calling Killer B. And up until maybe episode three, Killer B is seen as this, like, it, the investigation of Killer B is kind of... It's where you think it's going, and you're just trying to figure out how this is happening, and this is played out as a very, like, Sherlock Holmes-esque mystery. But I think it actually might be episode five. I forget what episode it is. But early on, they introduce the supernatural element, in that Killer Bee is some sort of magical being who can turn his right arm into, like, a blade from, like, just below the elbow down becomes a full-on, like, blade, and then it could, and then he could turn it back into his arm and hand, into his forearm and hand, but he's doing battle with some shady organization that is, like, trying to upend, they're trying to upend the, not only the world, but the, trying to upend something. No one's quite sure what what that is, but 
they realize pretty quickly that it involves a lot of, like, fucked up murder and crime. Um, and at some point, one of the characters, um, a, a side character by the name of, 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 um, of Brian, I think, is his name, uh, finds this, like, online form talking about this shadowy organization supposed to run the country from the shadows, so it, like, creating, creating and quelling chaos whenever it's deemed necessary for the country to ultimately succeed, called Market Maker. And they have a very specific trait, and that is they have like a skull, like a skull tattoo on their, on the palm of their hand, on the palm of I think specifically their right hand. And Market Maker supposedly like control, like guides the country and controls it from the shadows, meaning like if it thinks things are going too well and the country is kind of like stagnating, it'll shake things up with, like, fucking up the stock market or whatever. But, um, in... But that's just kind of, like, played for just, like, a world-building story at first. And also the show kind of makes sure that you still focus on the B, the Killer B investigation, because at this point you know that Koku is actually Killer B, and for whatever reason, he had decided to start killing people. You, they don't tell you that too quickly in, but then they start to, and you all, and by knowing that Koku is Killer B, you know there's a supernatural element to all of this, and then. The show kind the I want to be clear, the show never really falls apart. It never truly drops the ball, but it comes close enough where you que where you have moments where you can question whether or not, like, is this show good at what it's doing? Is it, like, is it honestly good at what it's doing? And that moment, and those moments start to become more frequent once the show... Starts to, like, try and mesh both things. And ultimately what this show is trying to do is it's trying to tell... It, it's trying to tell a, a, Sherlock Holmes, a Sherlock Holmes revenge caper style story. In that Keith, when he was a young investigator, um... Had his daughter, had his daughter, uh, not his daughter, his sister, his younger sister, killed by a serial killer. And that serial killer was, they, was they don't know who. Um, and we'll get to who that was eventually, I promise. And... He, with his renowned in in intellect, ended up kidnapping and 
I don't know if he killed, but he definitely tortured the perpetrator. And you find out that, like, the reason that he was ousted from the forge was not because he was a quack and no one could tolerate him. It was because he had, he, like, had a, had a, he, like, snapped. Just at the end, it looked like, that guy did it? Okay, let's go kill that guy. Snapped. Like, full-on mental snappage. But you... But everyone in that... In that unit acknowledges that Keith is this, like, kind of mad genius. Of, like, he doesn't care what people think. He is... He is... The kind of like he is like a kind of Albert Einstein level genius, in a way that only really one other person in this show is, and that one other person is revealed to be Lily. Lily is revealed to be this like, on the same level as Keith, true genius of a person, and once you find that out. It makes a lot more sense why why Lily is in the story at all because this entire time, all the characters, including Lily, are shown to be incredibly competent and effective and skillful. But Lily seems the least affected, to a certain extent, to to a large extent, by the circumstances and the situation happening around her and that we and that ultimately leads that ultimately leads people to you the audience to be like like she does her job but just barely well enough for anyone to like keep her employed and then at somewhere i think like halfway through the series they start to acknowledge like no lily's a genius Lily the fucking eccentric, awesome genius who can, like, solve math portraits and shit. Which is a thing in this show. This thing has equation murals and stuff, which is wild. But the thing you come to find out is that Keith Flick, um, or Cosima uh, Flick, also known as Keith, or Keith Flick is what most people call him, is, has been a genius since he was a child. And this whole situation happening with Market Maker and these, like, mythical, like, gods and demi-humans and all this other stuff was kind of kicked off by him. Because as a child, he solved... This, like, this, he solved this stone tablet riddle, this giant stone tablet that contains all this insane information, and no one could crack it, but he eventually did. And that led to the creation of, of Koku, and of Yuna, who are... These like two, like god god characters in this show. Koku is the, but Koku is also Killer B. But what you come to find out is that 
Killer B is not... The reason why they call him that is because he leaves what looks like a B on somewhere in the... Somewhere at the scene of every crime. But that is revealed not to be... A, a real a, a real thing that is revealed not to be the real deal with the with the marking the marking is actually the Roman numeral for 13 with overlapped with the Roman numeral for four meaning that it's 13 and four and what those correlate to is 13 was Koku's number when he was a child when he was like a since aside the god child test subject and unit number one she was the same thing and the whole thing gets really geopolitical and complicated in a way that feels bloated and by the end of the story, by the end of the show you find out that that's not even the end of the story. They have more story there to tell. Um, and part of that is unfortunate because it feels like they told a full story. And it, it seems like a waste of these characters. Of this, of these characters, this setting, and the rules they've set up in this universe to just tell another chapter in that story when they could, in a really interesting way, have this almost, like, paranormal detective drama thing that comes back season after season with, like, a new big case that they have to solve or a new, like, three cases that they have to solve where they have to use all these bits and pieces of everything to, like, break down a Rubik's Cube of mystery, which would be a really interesting thing. Now, uh, I'm interested to see what they do with the second season because they're bringing back another one of those test subjects to do another different thing. But it's just interesting to me that they're continuing that and not telling, uh, and not using all these parts to tell a different story. Um, but you come to find out that the person who kicked off the kind of culling of all the other test subject kids is none other than Keith's friend, a doctor who wor who works for the who works for the cops, who is also the serial killer who killed his sister, a guy named Gilbert. And Gilbert is seen to be a righteous sociopath and psychopath. Uh, and he has, like, split personalities and all this other crazy shit going on with him. And they set up this... At this point, at a, a point at the end of the show, they set up this diverging path where... Keith is going down this path to deal with Gilbert, and Koku is going down this path to deal with this um, character. Um, I forget his name. 
the the kind of like big big bad character of the show who um just kind of like um I'm gonna see if I can find his name here. But anyway, so this character is kind of aiming to become the new god of the world by by killing Koku and also Yuna and just like assuming the mantle, if if you will. And the problem here is that they take the two pieces of the show that make the show intermingle and be interesting and they separate them out and it's almost like they're hoping that they'll both be as interesting by themselves when they can't. And don't get me wrong, I really like the show. I thought it was really interesting. But they separate out this like this murder mystery part where you have this ultra you have this ultra fascinating like running down of the bad guy of the killer into like a dark old mystery house and where he plays project projector footage of why he did it and like his motivations and all this shit and you have some really heart-wrenching drama there but then on the other end of the spectrum you have this almost bleach-esque power struggle that's deal that's dealing with but the I ideas that it's dealing with are derided from a character in the high dramatic, high tension, high stakes murder mystery scenario. So uh, it it feels like those two things could have been pulled together in a way that let them both continue into the same in the same direction and not have and not fork off and then rejoin at the end which is what happens and it i kind of wish the show had been confident enough to do that and to and to make that and to take that to, gripping tension they have with the with the catching the with the tracking down Gilbert and catching Gilbert and marry it so directly with the and marry it as best they could with the like black wing god storyline they have going on in that show because so I'll let you guys in on a little secret. I I get really anxious sometimes when I'm watching a show because I get really invested in it. I get invested in certain characters, and then the part of the of kill of be the beginning where Lily agrees to be a to be bait for Gilbert for Gilbert. She agrees because one of the reasons why. And throughout the entire show, you notice that her and Keith have a really unique relationship. 
they are bizarrely attracted to each other. Not in, like, a necessarily romantic sense at first, but in a, like, they want to be around each other, and they enjoy it on a level, on some level, but they won't necessarily admit that to themselves or each other or anyone. And that's because they, not only are, are they, they have the same level of intellect, but also Lily is physically very similar to Keith's younger sister before she died. And as a, because of that, they have the, Keith has the idea of using her as bait for Gilbert. But then every, the rest of the, the police crew objects to it. And Lily's like, no, I'm doing it. This is how we're going to catch this asshole. Let's do it. Before anybody else dies. And... She does it, but they get caught. But but she she gets caught, and they and he paralyzes her as he's done to apparently a lot of women in the past, and some men you're led to believe. Puts her on a table and like wants to dissect her. He doesn't get to do it, but. It in that in that moment in the moment of like oh shit Louie might die here. I straight up fast forwarded to the scene where I knew she was alive, and then fast and then rewinded back because I'm like I need to know. So this show in that in those moments had enough tension for you to for me as a viewer as purely a viewer not someone looking at this critically to like freak out and be like, I can't handle this. I need to know. But then it, but then it takes that. But at that point, it's already, it's already kind of branched off from the black wing God arc of everything. And it's, that's handled very well. But the Blackwing God part of this whole scenario is handled almost like a shonen action show. It, 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 the entire time watching the fight, you know that they're going to come out okay. <laughs> even, even at the like most, even at the worst part of it, you know that it's going to be fine. And that, that's a, that's a big weird deal that makes any sense. Because one section of the show is like, they'll be fine, don't worry about it. The other section of the show had the balls to be like, we might fucking murder this girl. <laughs> and when you look at, but it also, It also doesn't have the kind of... At the same time... It, it doesn't have this kind of ruthlessness the Blackwing God arc has. If those two things could have been married together in a closer way, I think the whole show would have felt better. 
and uh, then the show wraps up and it's like this happy thing and then you get the like big bad last scene where you see the new bad guy and you're like oh there's more of this okay and it's not like an okay it's like okay there's more of this oh, we'll be back at some point and I, but the thing that I can't stress enough that elevates this show beyond just kind of meh it's because it has had Netflix money just like dumped into it's the product of I of production IG with Netflix money dumped into it. It it's just so ever everything everything is as kind of fleshed out and every visual concept is as fleshed out and sought out as something like Ghost in the Shell, standalone complex. Because it's just... They had the room to run. And they have, like... The room to... Like, create all the... To, create, to like, explore these ideas. Make a show that they... At the, le at the running length. Where they can have these serious character development moments, but also just these hilarious jokes, like the moment where Koku and, and, um, what's-his-face, um, Keith encounter each other at the library, and Koku's like, and Koku has been looking for Keith for a long time for plot reasons, and he looks back, and Keith is just gone, and you're like, that's weird. He was just there, wasn't he? And then they show you the staircase of the library, and he just straight up fell down the stairs. It, it, it has this knack when it, when it knows that it can afford to. It has this knack of knowing exactly how to hit comedic beats just as well as dramatic beats. That give it a like this like life to it. They give it a life that's similar to a Lupin the Third life. And there are sections of Lupin the Third that are not great. There are sections of this show that are not great. Like the sections of Lupin the Third, I mean like whole whole parts of Lupin the Third, which technically means whole seasons of Lupin the Third are just like uh, not great, but the, the chunk, not okay, but because it was given enough room to run, all that stuff can exist in the same show, and it still feels like it's in place, like it's in a good place, um, but that's actually, and if you want to check it out, once again, it's on Netflix. It's easy to find. I think it's like, um, let me check the episode length. It's, um, it's 12 episodes currently. I would bet in its next season it's going to do another 12 somehow. Um, I, it stretched a little long in this. Like, I think they could have taken some stuff out or, like, worked some stuff into some other episodes and not had to linger on it so much. And it would have, like, felt a little less long in the tooth at the end, but it's a good, 
12 episode chunk, I think. Um, and worth your time, if for no other reason than it is goddamn gorgeous. But on that note, I've been Alex, and you've been l- listening to Lunchbox Radio. And if you like this podcast, I would highly suggest telling your friends about it. Um, tell your friends, tell your family. <laughs> um, I will have stuff for you to listen to over the holidays. I will be doing a Christmas episode next week, since that's the last episode before Christmas on a very special thing, which you'll find out next time. But until then... I'll talk at you later. And God has never played his role. Cause I'm the one who saves my soul. It's a perfect world we're longing for. So
翼を奪われた夢には